Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com slash build. That's Chime.com slash build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. I'm hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zach. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, June 16th. Today, what Biden's summit with Putin can tell us about the future of U.S.-Russia relations and why renters are going on strike. Hello, everyone. Uh, well, I've just finished the, uh, the last meeting of this week's long trip, uh, the U.S.-Russian summit. On Wednesday, President Biden and President Putin met for the first time since Biden entered the White House to discuss a range of issues. Eugene Scott writes about politics for The Post. He spoke to our editor, Alexis Diao including uh, Russia's behavior towards uh, countries that feel very much abused uh, and manipulated and disrespected by the country uh, in areas related to human rights and election interference and cyber attacks. I know there were a lot of hype around this meeting, but it's pretty straightforward to me, the meeting. One, there's no substitute, as those of you who have covered me for a while know, for face-to-face dialogue between leaders. None. And President Putin and I had a uh, share unique responsibility to manage the relationship between two powerful and proud countries. The two also discussed what Russia would eventually need to do to reach the level of global respect and prominence that Putin has longed for for years, despite behaving in ways that the United States and other global leaders believe keeps it from being viewed as a peer of democracies where people are respected and international law is followed. Can you give us some context quickly of what President Biden was hoping to accomplish going into these discussions with President Putin? Well, when Biden ran for president, uh, he made it known that it was a big problem that the global reputation of the United States uh, had declined under Donald Trump and that uh, for it to reverse and improve, Trump needed to get out of the White House. Uh, Biden, given his experience in the Senate, uh, really positioned himself as this foreign policy expert and and someone who had met previously with Putin and, according to Biden, uh, had strong words for uh, the president. And so what he was hoping to do was uh, double down on that uh, now that he's in the White House and really uh, try to get Putin to walk away from uh, some of his human rights uh, abuses, uh, the cyber attacks and uh, cybersecurity violations that the Russian government has been involved in in so many different elections and other situations and just assert himself as someone who uh, was not going to be taken advantage of or manipulated in the way that so many people uh, believed Donald Trump had been by Putin. Following their meeting, both leaders held separate press conferences. We heard from 
Putin first. Can you uh, recap for us? What did he say? Putin spent significant time respecting and, and praising Biden. If you ask me what kind of a person and interlocutor President Biden is, I can say that he is a constructive person, well-balanced and experienced, seasoned politician. And I expected that. Noting that he thought he was a moral leader uh, of, of good character and that their time together was constructive and beneficial and that they'd reached an agreement on uh, cybersecurity issues, although he did not provide uh, many details. But he certainly did uh, downplay uh, how much of a role uh, or should I say job Biden played in perhaps maybe, you know, putting him in his place or asserting himself. But uh, he certainly seemed to imply that things could move forward in a positive direction between the two countries based on this uh, meeting. And what was Biden's response after the meeting? And what was his tone like? Well, Biden spoke very positively about uh, their meeting and suggested that uh, he made it clear to Putin that there could be significant consequences if his actions did not change. I did what I came to do. Number one, identify areas of practical work our two countries can do to advance our mutual interest and also benefit the world. Two, communicate directly, directly, that the United States will respond to actions that impair our vital interest or those of our allies. And three, to clearly lay out our country's priorities and our values so we heard it straight from me. And I must tell you, the tone of the entire meetings, I guess it was a total of four hours, was, 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 was good, positive. And he said he would continue to hold uh, Russia's feet to the fire and make sure that they uh, perhaps acted differently in terms of how uh, they interact with many countries that they say they believe that they are on equal footing with, um, as well as some of those that uh, Russia is clearly uh, in more of a superior uh, situation with. Hmm. How different was the tone that Biden had taken today than Trump did. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the now infamous 2018 meeting in Helsinki between then President Trump and Vladimir Putin, in which Trump said he asked him, you know, if he had interfered with the elections. And and he said no. I think there was a lot of anticipation going into today's summit that, you know, Biden would lay a red line with Putin, that he would take a firmer stance. Did he? He appeared to, based on what he said in his press conference, it, it, it seemed as if Trump uh, saw Putin as an equal, as a world leader on the same level as him, worthy of respect and admiration. Uh, Trump has uh, been criticized significantly at multiple times for uh, believing Putin and his intelligence over American intelligence and, and other American politicians who are far more familiar with uh, Russia's activities globally uh, than Trump was. Biden seemed to be very aware of who Putin is, who he has been, uh, and what he's capable of doing moving forward and wanted to make clear uh, to the American people and the press after their meeting that he challenged uh, the leader on his actions and certainly pushed him towards uh, moving in a direction that would be more respectful of so many different countries and the people uh, that his actions uh, impact. And so uh, Biden did not interact uh, with Putin as if he was worthy of the same level of respect as someone who's leading a democracy where people are treated uh, decently and other countries are respected for their autonomy. Uh, but Biden was not uh, 
overly disrespectful, at least in uh, his recap of the event, in the way that I think some people who really despise Putin and his leadership maybe would uh, have wanted. But I don't know that that is what's to be expected from Biden, because that's just not how uh, he leads. And he made that very clear when he emphasized the importance of building uh, personal relationships with people while doing foreign policy. What is your sense of where they left the issue of cybersecurity? I mean, if, as you said, Putin had downplayed the issue of whether or not he had actually conducted or was behind or Russia was behind some of these cybersecurity attacks, did he deny it? Well, it's clear that they made some type of agreement, but the details of that are not clear. You know, Putin actually denied, of course, that he was involved in these cybersecurity attacks or providing shelter for individuals who were. As for cybersecurity, we reached an agreement, chiefly, that we will start negotiations on that. I think that's extremely important. Now, as for who needs to take on any sort of commitment, I'd like to inform you of something. I'm talking about something that's already well known, but not known to the broader public. Not from American sources. I'm I'm afraid that I'll confuse the names of organizations. Uh, But as for American sources, they've said that most of the cyber attacks in the world are carried out from the cyber realm of the United States. In second place is Canada. Afterwards, Latin American countries, and then comes Great Britain. Where's Russia on this list? Uh, Russia's not on the list. He certainly uh, acknowledged the colonial pipeline situation last month that uh, led the company to, you know, give millions to their blackmailers to get things up and running again. Putin also suggested that the West, including the U.S., is actually more involved in cyber attacks than Russia. And so uh, that certainly is is bound to upset uh, many people who believe that Russia alone is acting uh, inappropriately and to a degree that is exceptional. Um, Biden made it clear that he's just going to continue to hold uh, Russia's feet to the fire and expect them to behave differently unless uh, and if they don't risk uh, being shut out of some of the major conversations happening around the world uh, led by individuals who operate in a way that is respectful um, and diplomatic when it comes to cyber issues. So what do we know about other topics that were discussed during the meeting between Biden and Putin? Well, Biden really tried to make it known that he wasn't just there to talk to Putin about Russia, but the values of the American people. And we know he, you know, brought up Alexei Navalny. Mr. President, just a quick follow on the same theme of consequences. You said just now that you spoke to him a lot about human rights. What do you say would happen if opposition leader Alexei Navalny dies? I made it clear to him that I believe the the consequences of that would be devastating for Russia. There was discussion about free speech, human rights issues, and just so many of the uh, topics that, you know, dominate the headlines when it comes to Russia. And so it was a pretty far reaching uh, conversation with, you know, very few conclusions uh, made. But I think what Biden wanted to make clear to Putin is what his values were and what things, uh, issues, should we say, would be of concern during his presidency that perhaps did not get as much attention during the Trump presidency. I'm curious, what actually gets done in summits like like this? I mean, is there any real foreign policy accomplished in these meetings or are they more about posturing? 
Well, for a new president, which Biden still is, what these uh, gatherings uh, allow for is to communicate where leaders stand, what their values are, what their priorities will be, what issues and uh, topics they will not tolerate. And they are, you know, occasions to distinguish themselves from other past leaders and to uh, show that their um, agenda may differ uh, in some very key ways from those who've come before them. And so uh, if anything, you could say that what Biden really wanted to communicate was that this was a new day and not just to Putin, but other global leaders who, you know, have wondered where America was going uh, under the leadership of Trump and under the continued uh, support for him among the Republican Party. And so leaving this gathering, this summit will give world leaders and their administrations a better idea of how to interact diplomatically uh, with countries uh, that were represented, specifically the newer ones, in ways that could serve in the best interest of all of those involved. You know, I think that there's a lot of concern about whether or not the U.S. and Russia would be slipping back toward a kind of Cold War era relationship. Did either of the leaders address this? And is there reason to believe that we may be slipping back into Cold War? I don't think he's looking for a Cold War with the United States. I don't think it's about, a, as I said to him, I said, your generation and mine are about 10 years apart. This is not a kumbaya moment, as he used to say back in the 60s in the United States, like, let's hug and love each other. But it's clearly not in anybody's interest, your countries or mine, for us to be in a situation where we're in a new Cold War. The interactions that Biden has had with uh, Putin suggest that uh, they want uh, that the president wants something much more positive and uh, healthy and uh, maybe even collaborative than, than what happened in the past, but that that ultimately is up to Putin and uh, in terms of his actions and behaviors. Uh, so whether or not things move in a direction that is more harmonious, it's ultimately dependent on whether or not uh, Putin respects uh, international law and where global leaders believe that uh, countries should be headed at this period in time when it comes to interacting with one another. Eugene Scott writes about politics for The Post. He spoke to editor Alexis Diao on Post Reports. The story was produced by Lena Mohammed. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. So for the past six weeks or so, I have been hanging out and interviewing and spending time at a apartment complex in Prince George's County called the LaSalle Park Apartments. That's Kyle Swenson. He writes about inequality for The Post. It's a pretty large complex, multiple buildings kind of scattered around. The folks who live there are mainly working class folks, and many immigrants from Central America and South America also live there as well. So for the last couple of weeks, I've been hanging out there talking with residents and 
kind of hanging on the sidelines while they go through a rent strike. And what is a rent strike? What does that look like? So in the most basic way, a rent strike is when people withhold their rent. They don't pay their landlord their rent. And this can be a way of pushing back against conditions in the apartment. It can be a way of kind of battling back against rate hikes or increases in fees. It's a way for a tenant kind of to take back a little control from the landlord by withholding the rent. Kyle talked with producer Rennie Svernovsky. When and why did the tenants at LaSalle Park start their rent strike? So for the last year, the tenants at LaSalle have really been hurting. A lot of these folks work in restaurants or offices. They were really the workers who were frozen out of the economy when everyone went on lockdown. You know, these aren't folks who can work from home and draw a paycheck from home. So for months and months, many of these people had been out of work. They'd been struggling. And during that whole time, they had continued to get notices from their landlords that their rent was still due. Now, there is a eviction moratorium from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, a federal moratorium. That means that until June 30th, people cannot be evicted for failure to pay rent. But that doesn't mean that the rent is wiped clean. Like these payments are still due. These folks still need to pay that rent. And for the folks at LaSalle Park, they had just been seeing month after month of bills piling up and they weren't getting help from the federal government and local government they felt they needed. What kind of help were they hoping to get from the federal and local government? And and why hasn't it been getting to them? So the federal government has done something really interesting and unprecedented. It's offered about $46 billion in rent relief. And this is both money that came from the Trump administration and also money that came from the Biden stimulus package. So this money came down from the federal government, and it's there specifically for rent relief. It's there for folks who have been hurt by the pandemic, who can't pay their bills, who can't pay their monthly payments on their rent for their housing. And that money is sitting there, but it's what we've found in a lot of reporting at The Post is that it's not getting into the hands of renters, including the folks at LaSalle Park. That is so much money that could be put to good use. How is that happening? Yeah, we found some colleagues and I did some reporting that found about $300 million of rent relief money that's been given to local governments across the Washington region hasn't been used. And the reason is that the the federal government has given all this money to local governments, but it hasn't really given them the infrastructure or the tools of getting this money into the hands of renters. So essentially, local governments are designing a mechanism to get this money out while having to get the money out at the same time. It's kind of like, you know, building the plane while flying it. And so that process has been really difficult for a lot of local governments. They've struggled to find an efficient way to get this money out. And in Prince George's County specifically, how much money is just kind of sitting around? Do we know how many people it could actually help? So we don't know how many people really have applied yet, but we know that Prince George's County has gotten about $27 million for rent relief. And as of late May, they had spent about $7.4 million. But again, the counties are really overwhelmed by this amount of money. You know, they don't really have the existing programs in place to handle this massive amount of money. I guess I'm wondering what makes this kind of program different from something like the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, where the government was just trying to get the money out to as many businesses as possible, as quickly as possible, without putting quite as much weight on the potential fraud? Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. So 
I think the main difference is, is that you have multiple parties involved in this. So not only do the tenants have to apply, but the landlords have to apply. And depending on what state and depending on what the program looks like, they might have to apply together. And so it's interesting in LaSalle, you know, LaSalle Park, the folks had filled out those applications and they felt like they were being ignored because the money hadn't come. But also at the same time, the landlord, this company called J. Alexander, they as well had filled out their part of the applications. They wanted their tenants to get the money too for rent relief. And so they were just waiting from the county. So because there's so many more players involved in the process, it slowed it down much more than, say, the PPP. And tell me a little bit more about those landlords. Who are they? How are they feeling about the rent strike that their tenants are putting on? Sure. So this particular building is owned by a company called J. Alexander, which owns a number of apartment complexes around the Washington area. And I was there one day when a a large, fairly large group, about 30 tenants, confronted an executive from the management company. And to her great credit, she sat there, she listened to what people had to say, she, she explained situations, she gave out her phone number. She really tried to work with the tenants. And from the landlord side of things, you know, they're frustrated as well. They've applied for this rent relief. They are waiting for this money to come down. They know the money's out there, but they're just waiting for it to get to them. And I guess we can sympathize with them, right? Nationally, the eviction moratorium has put landlords in a challenging position. They have these mortgages to pay. And, you know, do we know, could they get by if they didn't get the income from these units? Yeah, that's a really good point because, you know, this has gone on for quite a while. This is over a year at this point that that a lot of these landlords have been hurting. And so their position, you know, maybe they could weather three or four months of reduced rent income, but could they really weather a year and a half? And that's what they're looking at now. And I think a lot of them are struggling in that situation. So from when you were out reporting, what stories from tenants have stuck with you? I spoke with one woman named Naomi who lived at LaSalle Park with her husband. Um, So how long have you been here? How long have you been living here? Uh, In 2017. So they moved here in 2017. And this couple, they had never missed a rent payment. They were always on time with their rent, they told me. And when the pandemic started, they were both put out of work. But they really kind of did everything they could to make their rent payments. They borrowed money from family, they took out small loans, you know, they went without eating, they had an empty uh, refrigerator. But, you know, after about a year of doing that, you know, then those loans started coming due. They had to repay folks, they had to repay their friends, repay the small loans. And they basically realized that they couldn't pay this month because they're, they're having to start to pay back all the people that they owe from mm. previous And eventually they were basically just selling off all of their uh valuables. Naomi told me that she had basically sold all of her jewelry off and basically what she was left with was just the items that had the most sentimental value, some jewelry from her mother, I believe. And so she just was able to get back some of the stuff that she pawned. And so with the little bit of money that she has left, she just can't let go of that to have to go pawn stuff again. What type of stuff did you have to pawn? Uh-huh. Yeah. So like rings, uh, chains, you know, jewelry. So another woman who really stuck out to me was named Juana. Uh, she had three children and she had lived at LaSalle Park for a number of years. And at the beginning of the pandemic, she lived with her boyfriend. But 
As the pandemic went on, they both were out of work and she ended up breaking up with her boyfriend and moving into a spare bedroom in a friend's apartment at the complex. So in, in one room, it's the, the mother and the husband and the father. She really struggled to feed her family. She had been going out weekly to food banks and, you know, these long lines that we've all seen of, of hungry folks trying to get food distribution. But even for her, the more important than food actually was getting a hold of sterile water. One of her daughters has a tube in her stomach and needs to be cleaned out, so they have a really hard time finding water. So Juana was part of the rent strike, and it was kind of interesting. I saw over time, you know, when I would first go to these events, she kind of stayed to the back and didn't really get too much involved. But as time went on, she was getting closer and closer to the center of the crowd and became much more active in the protests and the demonstrations. And I asked her about it, and she told me that, you know, she felt kind of a charge of energy and, and confidence from being involved in the protest. And I think that a lot of families and a lot of participants in the Red Strike found a kind of current of energy and a current of meaning in what was going on with the strike. Because these are folks, you know, for months they felt ignored. They felt like nobody cared about them. And banding together with their neighbors and waving signs and, and, and making noise uh, was a way of kind of reasserting themselves. So once the eviction moratorium ends at the end of this month, what are Juana's options and, and those of her neighbors? So when the eviction moratorium runs out, folks like Juana and other tenants at LaSalle Park, you know, they will possibly face eviction. You know, the debt hasn't been wiped out. They still owe the money that the landlord says they owe. And so I think what we'll see is a lot of people tumbling into the eviction process very quickly because, you know, they've gone months without paying rent. And is there any chance that the money from the federal government will get to them before that point? Well, the race is kind of on for the money to get to these folks. We're talking again, billions of dollars that's sitting out there just for renters and landlords. And local governments are scrambling. I mean, they're working overtime trying to get that money into people's hands. It just remains to be seen whether that money will actually get to these folks before the eviction moratorium expires. Kyle Swenson writes about inequality for The Post. Renny Svernovsky produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rennie Svernovsky. A couple of weeks ago, we had a story on the podcast about cicadas, and we heard from so many listeners who said that they loved the story and it made them think differently about bugs, but also about time and history and mortality. 
At The Washington Post, we pride ourselves on those kinds of stories. Because yes, we cover politics and breaking news, but we also report stories that surprise you and delight you and take you to unexpected places. To support those stories that you love on the podcast, consider becoming a Washington Post subscriber. For a limited time, podcast listeners can get one year of unlimited access to The Post for just $29. That is less than a dollar a week for a vast world of quality journalism. Sign up at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. And thank you. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.